One might wonder, if modern humans are simply walking around with caveman brains encased in our 21st century skulls, brains stamped with a date that expired 100,000 years ago, aren't we doomed? After all, with the technological capacity to completely destroy all life on Earth, do we really have the luxury of sitting around playing checkers for the next hundred thousand or million years until evolutionary forces can catch up and adapt our brains to modern conditions? Fortunately, we are not doomed. Our brains may have circuitry that was adapted to these problems of our seemingly endless period of hunter-gatherer societies, but our brains have vast resources as well resources that can be used to modify and reshape our customary ways of thinking and responding to the world around us. In fact, we have almost limitless untapped resources at our disposal. Even though we have the brain circuitry to act on earlier programming, and even brain circuits hardwired during a more primitive time urging us to act in certain ways, we are not compelled to do that. Yes, we have the capacity for anger, hatred, prejudice, and exaggerated fears, but we also have the capacity for kindness, compassion, tolerance, and altruism. Yes, we have the more primitive emotions of the limbic system, but we also have the more advanced neocortex with its capacity for reasoning, critical thinking, creativity, and higher brain functions. And we have the choice of which responses to cultivate and strengthen. Every moment of our lives, for instance, new connections, synapses, are being formed between our nerve cells in response to new learning, to new experience. In fact, one million new connections are being formed for every second of our lives. We have the capacity to develop new circuits, establish new connections between nerve fibers in the brain, and forge new neural pathways that can reshape the very structure and function of the brain. This amazing capacity of the brain is called neuroplasticity, and increases in our understanding of brain plasticity have helped us realize that the brain is not an irrevocably fixed organ, so we can establish new programming that determines how we might respond to situations, even to train our minds to perceive things in new ways. It is these features of the brain that will allow us to find new non-violent ways to resolve disputes, new ways of interacting with our fellow human beings, and it is the capacity responsible for the fundamental premise of the Art of Happiness series, the fact that we can train our minds to be happy, genuinely happy, to be kinder and more compassionate. Now, all we need is the will and a bit of practice. From the perspective of the neural equipment we're all issued at birth, the path to a more peaceful, non-violent world, one in which individuals enjoy inner personal happiness and outer societal happiness, is inside us. So, there is cause for optimism, even celebration. The Dalai Lama's vision of a world dominated by kindness instead of cruelty where our human conflicts are predominantly solved by dialogue instead of violence, is a very real possibility. Chapter 14 Finding Our Common Humanity Your Holiness, 
I know that you are leaving Tucson tomorrow to go on to the next city on your tour. But I am jumping off here and won't be joining you to the next city. So this will be our last meeting for a little while. But this question about a more specific method to establish a deep feeling of connection with others has been something that I've been wanting to ask you for quite a while. Of course, yesterday, we didn't have time to go into it. So that's why I want to be sure and start off today's meeting with that question. Okay, let's start, said the Dalai Lama. So, to review, I began. Yesterday, we concluded that most of our societal problems in one way or another seem to be related to this inability to connect to others on a deep level, a basic human level that perceives others to be just a human being like oneself. So, this issue is so important, I'm hoping that today we can examine this issue thoroughly and come up with a practical approach to cultivating that kind of connection with people, even with people who appear to have nothing in common with you. In that case, he said, perhaps we could use a popular method of the Buddhist approach to addressing problems. Here, I mean using the analogy of curing an illness. First, we understand what the problem is. Second, we examine its causes and conditions. Third, we inquire whether or not there is a possible cure. And then finally, if we know there is a cure, we seek to apply the necessary remedy. Yes, Your Holiness, I like that model, I responded enthusiastically. So, using this model, Your Holiness, the problems we have been discussing in our last few series of discussions could be considered some of the major ills of society. These illnesses would include, for example, lack of sense of community, increasing alienation and isolation, lack of trust, as well as the more acute ailments involving acts of prejudice, conflict, violence, and things like that. Am I right? I asked. Yes, that's right, replied the Dalai Lama. Since this was our final meeting for this series of discussions, I asked, To review, the causes of these illnesses would be things like our destructive emotions, distorted ways of thinking, plus the conditioning we receive from our environment, and on a more fundamental level, our tendency to divide ourselves into groups, us and them. And then some of these illnesses arise as groups develop prejudices against one another, and the more active forms of discrimination. True? I asked. Yes, he confirmed again, then added, Perhaps extreme individualism, where one feels so self-sufficient that they don't need others, and false sense of superiority should also be included in this category. But of course, when dealing with these problems, you will find many different causes, many factors involved. Now to follow through with the medical analogy, Your Holiness, what would you include in the category of remedies? I asked. As I usually point out, replied the Dalai Lama. When dealing with human problems, we need a variety of approaches on many different levels. For example, we've spoken about the critical importance of realistic thinking, examining any given situation or problem with a clear understanding of the reality. And I think personal contact is another key factor with these kinds of problems in dealing, for example, with human violence. Personal contact and dialogue are critical for resolving conflicts without violence. 
and personal contact also creates a basis for a greater sense of community. These are always helpful. So, many of the specific remedies related to specific problems we have already discussed. That's true, I affirmed. So, to get back to the main question, I guess now we are looking for more of an all-purpose remedy for global or societal problems. So, sticking with your medical model, let's say that you determine that there is a cure for these problems. Let's say that we determine that the ability to connect with others on a deep level, cultivating a feeling of affinity on a basic human level, where we feel that all human beings are our brothers and sisters, can act as a powerful general remedy to prevent or overcome all of these problems. So then, how do we apply the remedy? I mean, are there practical methods or strategies that can help create such a connection? I asked. Yes. Creating such a sense of connection to others may require a fundamental transformation, both in our outlook and the way we relate to others, he replied. Well, I guess I'm wondering more specifically, if we really want to change our perspective and develop that genuine sense of connectedness to others, to all human beings, where do we start? Once again, it all comes down to awareness. I laughed. So, once again, we're back to awareness. It seems as if we keep circling around back to awareness. I think in those first discussions in Dharamsala, you also mentioned how we need to cultivate greater awareness of our common humanity. But given the importance of these ideas and their implications related to empathy and compassion, which I want to bring up with you, I'm wondering if you can describe more precisely what we should become aware of. I mean like identifying some concrete facts or ideas that we could be aware of or think about that might help transform our underlying outlook in this way, helping us to cultivate a deeper feeling of connection to all human beings. Half expecting his standard response about how it depends on the circumstances, context, individual, and so on, I was surprised by the definitive nature of his reply. Yes, I think here three things. He replied decisively, Number one, reflecting on our social nature. Number two, reflecting on our interdependence. And finally, reflecting on our common humanity. Contemplating our social nature. Your Holiness, I responded, that sounds good. So, let's say that in order to cure our societal and individual ills, we need to develop a deep awareness of these three things. Now, I am wondering if you could elaborate or detail specifically what sorts of points one might contemplate in regards to these three essential facts. As I mentioned, I think the very first thing is to recognize that we human beings are basically social animals. We need to cultivate a deep appreciation of our social nature. It is part of our basic nature to come together to form community bonds, to work together with a spirit of cooperation. Now look at these bees. Their survival depends on cooperation. If one bee goes here, one bee goes there, they die. Everyone. So, without religion, without laws, without a constitution, these small animals cooperate. They know they need to work together to survive. So basically, that's our nature too.
Now, if we appreciate our social nature and the need to work cooperatively with each other, naturally, we will pay attention to others' welfare. This will create a society that is stable, happier, more peaceful. And the result is that everybody enjoys the benefit. There's no doubt about this. Otherwise, if the recognition of the social nature of human beings is not appreciated, and people completely disregard the welfare of others, then ultimately everyone suffers, including yourself, isn't it? So, given the importance of cultivating awareness of our social nature, before we go on, can you think of any additional ways to increase awareness of this? In fact, this can simply be a matter of keeping on the outlook for evidence or examples of this social nature. He replied, Can you think of any examples right now? I asked. He took a moment to consider. Yes. Now look at what happens when a community faces some crisis. This is often when you will see our cooperative nature coming out, when people pull together to deal with the crisis, with the well-being of the community foremost in their minds. This is a very basic human response, the reliance upon each other for support, for protection, and suggests the expression of our social nature. For example, look at what happened in New York following the tragedy of September 11th. In the face of this crisis, the people of that city pulled together like never before, solidifying their sense of community, working together cooperatively, and the barriers between people suddenly began to disintegrate, people connecting like they never did before. I heard that people looked at each other in the eye, acknowledged each other on the streets, and related to each other as fellow New Yorkers, no matter what social status one had or how another was dressed, and so on. And I think that this had even a more long-lasting impact. When there was a blackout in New York City, I heard that the spirit of cooperation was remarkable. People were open to one another, more helpful, had more of an attitude of a shared experience. I added, Of course, the question is why we don't always act in that manner, why it takes a crisis to pull us together. For a moment, the Dalai Lama remained silent. Sometimes he would unexpectedly stop to reflect on some point. Usually such reflections were brief. His reflective expression suggested that he was carefully turning over some question in his mind, perhaps seeking a deeper understanding of some fundamental issue. Sitting cross-legged, he would sway back and forth slightly as he thought. Like so many other times over the years, I marveled at the way he would explore issues with a real spirit of discovery. Even if we were discussing a topic that he had discussed countless times, there was still a freshness in his approach and a willingness to revise his views at any time. Apparently, having completed his brief inner contemplation, he resumed our discussion as unexpectedly as he had stopped. So, Howard, I think this is in line with the medical analogy we are using. When we are really in physical pain, we seek medication. But otherwise, if it is not obvious to the person that he or she is sick, then he wouldn't want to seek medication. You might see causes of a problem already developing, but you don't care if there is no pain, because there is no immediate threat or pain there. Usually, it takes a strong sensation of pain before you react. Well, I pointed out, 
Here we are talking about ways to increase our sense of connection to others. And we can say that one thing that brings people together, with a spirit of cooperation and sense of connection, is a crisis or shared suffering. But somehow, I said somewhat jokingly, I'm not sure if the deliberate creation of crises and suffering we can share is the most effective approach to building a sense of bonding and community among people. The Dalai Lama chuckled briefly. Then, continuing with this medical analogy, in the case of a sick person, a prudent person would not wait until it comes to the crisis point of unbearable pain before he takes care of his illness. It is much better if you can educate yourself recognize the symptoms of the illness and become more aware of the causes of the problem before the pain develops. You may want to check what is going on. This way, you can take better care of yourself. Similarly, even without a crisis, if individuals in a given society reflect a bit more deeply, they would see their deeply social nature and the interconnectedness of the well-being of all the members of the society. So the prudent thing would be to try to recognize this before crisis strikes. Therefore, if people do spend a little bit of time to reflect upon this, they will come to know that the well-being of one individual within a society is contingent upon the well-being of the society, that the interests are intertwined. Now, I mentioned how we can increase our awareness of these things by looking for examples, for evidence of our social nature. And fortunately, if we look for it, the evidence will be there. Because the fact of the matter is that normally people can come together. It's an expression of our basic nature. In pondering the great mysteries, the broad eternal questions, and the origins of the distinguishing characteristics of human existence, such as our deeply ingrained social nature, there is one place where we might start with the one feature that sets us apart from all other animals, our human brain. Or, alternatively, perhaps we might start with the one thing that is solely responsible for all the great achievements of human beings, responsible for all the magnificent works of human civilization that resulted from our big brain. A piece of unripe fruit. No, here I'm not talking about Eve's apple growing on the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'm talking about an ordinary piece of unripe fruit, hanging on an ordinary tree, growing in an African forest around 15 or 20 million years ago. One morning around that time, there was a little monkey who missed breakfast, so she was pretty hungry. She had missed breakfast because she slept in, and all the ripe fruit that had fallen from the trees had already been gobbled up by her friends. Her stomach was growling, and she was so hungry, she decided to take a bite out of a piece that was unripe, knowing, of course, that it wouldn't do her much good, since monkeys can't digest unripe fruit. Lo and behold, she discovered that she was able to tolerate the unripe fruit. In fact, she found that it satisfied her hunger, and she could digest it. Well... That was her lucky day, because from then on, this genetic mutation allowed her to have her fill of fruit every day. Everyone else had to wait until the ripe fruit fell, but she could grab herself a snack any time she wanted. 
not having to spend all her time scavenging for ripe fruit, left her plenty of time to mate, and she had lots of kids who could eat unripe fruit too. Well, within a few generations, there was an entire band of monkeys living in the forest who could digest unripe fruit, and they were just living it up. Now, at that time, there was a whole clan of cousins of the unripe fruit eaters who were also living in the forest and who still were able only to digest ripe fruit. They were frankly getting annoyed. All of a sudden, there was an awful lot of fruit going missing from the trees, even before it had a chance to ripen, and the fruit eaters were getting hungry. It wasn't fair. Finally, it got so bad that a few of the cousins decided they were fed up, and they decided to move out of the forest, or at least to the edge of the forest, bordering the savannas. Sure enough, they found more food there, with less competition from those damn unripe fruit eaters. But, sure enough, now there was another problem. There were some strange, fearsome creatures living there, big cats and dogs, who turned out to enjoy eating little monkeys as much as the monkeys enjoyed eating ripe fruit. Well, none of them wanted to go back into the forest where it was safe but where they went hungry most of the time. In the forest, they had gotten used to being pretty independent, as each monkey was fully capable of picking up the ripe fruit that fell on the ground, so they didn't really have to work together very much. But now, the monkeys realized that if they worked together as a team, warning each other about the predators, trying to fend them off as a group, then all of them would stand a much better chance of survival. So... They gave it a try, and it worked. Still, things were not exactly perfect. In the forest, each monkey could do pretty much what she or he wanted to do. Now that they had to work in groups, they still wanted to do whatever they felt like doing, but they had to balance their own needs in a way that wouldn't interfere with the functioning of the group, and things started to become more complicated. As the size of the group grew, alliances formed, and there was a more nuanced and complex dance to life, just to stay safe, get some food, and get laid once in a while. These savanna dwellers were the remote ancestors of chimps, gorillas, and humans, and this was the origin of our big brains, at least according to a number of top primatologists who have been studying primates for decades. There's a kind of popular notion in our culture that the evolution of our large brains vaguely had something to do with our opposable thumbs, and we evolved our large brains to make tools and outwit our neighbors of other species. But this theory, called the Machiavellian intelligence, or the social brain theory, attributes the evolution of our large brains to our social nature. The main idea is that we rose from a lineage in which both individual and group success depended on balancing the need to work with others with the need to hold our own, to thrive both as an individual and as a group, to compete and cooperate at the same time. Once we started to live together in groups, this placed a whole new load on our brain. The members had to develop the intelligence to balance their individual needs with those of the group learning how to cooperate and exercise some individual restraint when necessary. It also required understanding the behavior of other group members, 
forming alliances that were dynamic and might change, and so on. And as social structures became more complex, our ability to reason and plan and develop complex strategies was helpful if one wanted to stay safe, get enough to eat, and continue to mate without being isolated from the group, which put one in peril of death. Primatologists find this theory very appealing, as it fits the information on hand, such as the fact that among primate species, the relative size of the neocortex, the most recent thinking center of the brain, you know, in relation to the rest of the brain, is directly related to the size of the social groups formed by the species. In fact, primatologists can look at the size of a primate's neocortex upon autopsy and accurately predict the group size of that species. This unripe fruit theory is also consistent with the growth in body size of later primates, which conferred a greater chance of defending themselves against the predators, and it explains a wide range of primate behavior, such as grooming, which is thought to have evolved to solidify alliances within the group and form closer bonds. If this theory is correct, then the human brain, the distinguishing characteristic of our species, was designed specifically for us to work together cooperatively, and our social nature, as the Dalai Lama suggests, is the very core of what it means to be human. This discovery of the relationship between social group and brain size in primates has led some to calculate the maximum size of natural social groups for humans as well. And researchers have come up with a figure of around 150 to 200 people. That is the size group that our brains were designed to live among, keeping in mind the human brain was adapted for hunter-gatherer societies. Natural group size is the size of group that we can live in and develop the most efficient, smoothly running social organization, where we can keep track of the various personal characteristics of group members, thus being able to predict behaviors of other group members. It is the size of group that we can maintain with optimal interpersonal relationships, interacting smoothly on a personal basis with everyone. At this level, peer pressure serves to keep behavior in proper bounds, and group members can work out problems directly among themselves without having to defer to all sorts of rules and authorities, etc. One recollection that fascinated me after learning of this figure was of the Dalai Lama saying that they had chosen to organize their refugee population into camps of 160 people when they set up their refugee communities in India. What is the implication for our 21st century when we live in groups of hundreds of millions of individuals organized into nation-states? Well, it is not great. This means that we have the capacity, at least based on brain anatomy, to connect on a personal level with roughly 150 people at a given time. Beyond that, people just become abstract members of some group, with stereotyped characteristics. In a sense, this figure of 150 represents that maximum number of people whom the brain can simultaneously keep track of as real human beings, each with personal human characteristics, those with whom one feels a personal sense of connection. Beyond that, we have evolved many other strategies to deal with the human beings we live among. We share a language. 
with which we can communicate information about people without having to live in small groups where we must learn information about others firsthand. We have developed social hierarchies and governments with authorities who represent large numbers of people. We liberally use stereotyping, perceiving members of large groups to have certain attributes as a means of knowing something about a large number of individuals without being able to meet everyone. But from a biological perspective, at least some argue, the more the group expands in size, the more other people seem, on a gut level, like nameless, faceless objects, an it, or a thing, rather than a he or a she. We can be surrounded by thousands of other people every day, even come into personal contact with them, but we block out their personhood. Someone delivers our mail every day, but unless we know them personally, on a gut or brain level, they are simply the thing that brings the mail. Or someone thankfully hauls away our trash once a week, and they have a huge impact on the quality of our lives. Imagine if nobody hauled away your and your neighbor's trash, ever. Yet normally, we conceptualize them simply as the thing that makes the garbage go away. This explains a lot. The closer another person is to one's group, the more the other person seems real, and the more likely we are to experience compassion and caring for them. That's why we may feel more emotion for the death of a next-door neighbor than for a dozen youngsters in a bus accident on the other side of town, whom we hear about on the news, and why we feel more for the death of a dozen young residents of our own town than 50,000 people dying in an earthquake on the other side of the world. Perhaps this is why, on that morning of my first meeting with the Dalai Lama, as I sat listening to the news, recounted in the opening of this book, the stories of genuine human suffering, the suffering of human beings just like me, had little impact on a deep emotional level. Needless to say, this is just one among many factors contributing to the problems of the modern world. But fortunately, there are ways to turn the thing that makes the garbage go away into a real person, ways to personalize a stereotyped individual, to see others as real human beings, worthy of human dignity and respect, as people for whom we can feel empathy and compassion. We have already covered some of these methods, such as Susan Fisk's vegetable technique or the strategy of personal face-to-face -face contact. And here, the Dalai Lama adds a final method, developing a deep awareness of our social nature, our interdependence, and our common humanity, so that everyone we meet is seen through this lens. No matter what one's opinion of the true nature of human beings, there is one thing that is for certain. From an evolutionary and biological perspective, the Dalai Lama is absolutely correct that we evolved to work together in groups, and human beings cannot survive without working cooperatively with one another. Of course, this characteristic is not limited to human beings. Most other primates, like their human cousins, live in groups and show clear signs of sadness when separated from the group. In experiments in which they isolate an individual monkey from the group, the monkey will pull a lever over and over again, with no other reward than just getting a glimpse of another monkey. In fact, when seen from the perspective of sociobiologists or evolutionary psychologists, 
Most scientists agree that this is a genetically hardwired feature of human behavior, and there's a vast amount of scientific evidence supporting the Dalai Lama's view of the social nature of human beings. But as the Dalai Lama reminds us, recognizing and understanding our social nature is not something that is merely of scientific interest. It is not merely a matter of philosophy, religion, or academic theory, but rather something that is essential to our existence. In an age when, for one reason or another, more and more people lead relatively insulated lives, going about their daily business under the illusion that they are independent and self-sufficient, it seems that many have developed the notion that we have no real need for connection to the wider community or humanity, that this is something optional. Somehow in the past century or two, we have lost sight of the basic human need for social connection, somehow forgotten that this is a matter of our survival. As our conversation continued, he reminded us of this fundamental truth with utter clarity. Contemplating Our Interdependence We are caught in an inescapable web of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. That is the way the world is made. Dr. Martin Luther King The Dalai Lama spoke convincingly about our social nature as human beings and how a deep recognition and understanding of this can perhaps alter our perception of ourselves and reshape our attitudes toward others. So we went on to the second essential fact. I asked, Your Holiness, you've discussed the first factor that we can contemplate that can be used to cultivate a sense of commonality with all human beings, that is our social nature. Can you now speak about the second one you mentioned? Yes, he immediately replied. I think the next factor that ties us together is our interdependence. As human beings, we depend on one another for our very survival. And I think that in modern society, we are becoming even more interdependent and interconnected. Now in the past, more people lived separately, as farmers and as nomads. They were not so dependent on each other. So maybe in the old days, it was more realistic to have a feeling of independence, as the individual farmers worked hard, tilled the land, and created their own sustenance. But things have changed. More and more people live in cities, and the whole basis of creating metropolitan communities involves human beings coming together and working together. Of course, we can see from early tribal groups to today, it seems that human beings like to live together. We naturally tend to group together. But as society has become more complex, and we have developed these modern megacities, it seems that more than ever we need a sense of cooperation, a sense of community. So I often mention how the world is becoming smaller, the Dalai Lama continued. This means that through modern technology and communications, we have opportunities to come into contact with others throughout the world at an ever-increasing rate. And through things like the modern economic structure, our lives are becoming increasingly intertwined. And our welfare and others' welfare are closely linked to one another. For example... Any time there is a resurgence of violence in the Middle East, 
it immediately affects oil prices. There's a kind of domino effect through a chain reaction, the consequence of which is ultimately felt acutely even by an ordinary family living on the other side of the globe. Today, our lives are directly affected by what happens in the societies surrounding us, and even globally. For example, excessive pollution created in your area by local industries or certain lifestyles may have far-reaching effects that extend beyond your own community or even country. It could even have a global impact on the ozone layer, and so on. But often, as we've discussed, people don't think about the effect of their actions on others, and we tend to have a feeling of independence from others, no feeling of connection to the wider community or society. I was just thinking, I went on, it seems almost paradoxical that despite the heavily interdependent and interconnected nature of today's world, we seem to have an even greater sense of isolation and independence. For example, people may work in some industry or work for some company, and it may take many people to run their company or produce the product they sell. Yet when they get their own individual paycheck every two weeks, there's a kind of feeling of, well, I did my job. I worked hard in my own office, and I got paid for my work, and I'm supporting myself. So it does not make any difference what others at the company do. That's their business, this kind of thing. He nodded with a thoughtful expression. You know, it seems that when we are very young, from a very early age, we have this innate sense of connection with our mothers. We have a feeling that we can depend on our mother's care and concern. But somehow, later on, as we grow up, we feel that we can get by completely on our own, as if we can exist independently from others. I think that's a mistake. For instance, in your example of someone working for a big company, he said, perking up as he became more engrossed in the conversation, it all comes down to one's attitude and outlook. There's a kind of community in a large company. For instance, in the car-making industry, Although individuals may be working on an assembly line where there is only one part that is being produced, collectively they will produce a car. So people will say, we produce a car, not I produce a car. Therefore, there is an understanding that each is a part of the bigger network collectively making this product. So it becomes a matter of perspective, the Dalai Lama continued, a question of attitude that makes the difference. People have a choice. They can choose to acknowledge their interdependence, like a worker who feels a sense of connection with all the others who are working on the car they are producing. Or they can maintain the attitude, yes, I am free and independent. I earn my own money, and I buy my own things. Of course, that kind of outlook will lead to a sense of lack of dependence upon others, and the result will be a lack of feeling of connection with others. If one gives it some thought, it isn't difficult to come up with countless ways that our world is interdependent, how we are becoming more closely connected with each passing year. Modern history has been characterized by an exponentially growing interconnection and interdependency on every level. In the advances in communications, the Internet, transportation, the intertwining of economies, the advent of weaponry of such nightmarish proportions that concepts such as mutually assured destruction have been conceived. The idea of deterring nuclear war 
based on the knowledge that such an act would assure total annihilation of both sides. The advances in modern technology have proceeded at such a blinding pace. Consider that during the Oldowan period, the technology of the day, stone tools, stayed the same, with a few minor refinements, for two million years. The next big breakthrough came around 300,000 years ago, when some genius figured out that you could put a handle on your stone axe and have a tool with more than a single component. Although advances initially developed at a glacial pace, we have seen human civilization developing technologically, among other ways, at an increasingly rapid rate, down through the ages, until the speed of technological change has almost defied imagination. In just the past couple centuries, we have witnessed the world-shaking transformation of the Industrial Revolution, and have seen the changes continue to accelerate throughout the last century as well, when the primary basis of interdependence was either economic, for example, events such as the 1929 Wall Street crash, which had repercussions around the world, or military, with two world wars casting a net that swept up nations all over the globe with horrible consequences for civilians as well as combatants who were caught up in devastating collateral damage. Finally, we come to the present day, when it seems that our lives are turned upside down almost daily by some new invention. Even the interdependency of just the last century pales in comparison to the ways the world is shrinking today, as the Dalai Lama points out. A multifaceted interdependence of increasing complexity is joining people across the globe in all facets of life, some of it good, some of it bad. The traditional economic or military interconnection continues to escalate, to the point, for example, where the interpenetration of investment capital and market links is creating an economic interdependence that directly links the socioeconomic destiny of virtually the entire planet. Even cultures are interacting and impacting one another, as our cultural icons, fashions, and popular ideas cross borders as well, linking individuals in all parts of the globe. In fact, the Dalai Lama himself is a good illustration of that. His name, face, and his message of kindness, universal responsibility, human rights, and so on, is known around the world. There's no question the world is becoming more interdependent, making cooperation between communities and nations a critical issue. The Dalai Lama extends the principle of interdependence to all levels of human existence, personal as well as global, understanding that one's own welfare is inextricably linked to the welfare of others. In fact, if one searches carefully, one can find examples of interconnecting agents on every scale imaginable from the planetary scale to the microbial level. On the planetary scale, for example, no issue is of greater importance than environmental interdependence, as the Dalai Lama points out. The sudden massive changes in patterns of consumption, the growth of technology, manufacturing, and mass transportation of the 20th century have placed ecological interdependence center stage as the threat of nuclear disasters such as Chernobyl, the destruction of our rainforests, industrial pollution, and the use of substances like CFC gases have created environmental damage that affects us all, 
insidiously spreading across national boundaries unimpeded. And even on the microbial level, of course, viruses and bacteria could be seen from that perspective as having no respect for national borders, carried by living beings to connect people across the world with deadly results. From the time of the Spanish conquistadors who carried pathogens from Spain to the Native Americans in the New World, decimating 80 million people in the 16th century, to the tragic AIDS epidemic of our times. It is easy to see the principle of interdependence operating on every level, even on an individual level. One popular and powerful method of contemplating our interdependence has been the notion of six degrees of separation. These days, the concept is most well known for the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, a game seeking to connect any actor to actor Kevin Bacon by no more than six links. The concept originated with a Hungarian writer, Frigyes Karanthi, who wrote a volume of short stories in 1929, one of which was titled Chain Links, in which a character claimed that the modern world was shrinking due to the ever-increasing connectedness of human beings, as a result of technological advances in communications and travel. His characters created a game based on the idea that you could choose any stranger living on the face of the earth, and using no more than five individuals, one of whom is a personal acquaintance of yours, you could contact the selected individual using nothing except the network of personal acquaintances. In other words, you knew someone, who knew someone else, who knew someone else, etc., who knew the person named. But the main issue here, as the Dalai Lama makes clear, is not so much the particular facts one chooses to illustrate or reinforce our sense of interdependence, but the willingness to consider the critical importance of interdependence and its relevance to our lives in a personal and intimate way by recognizing that our happiness, to a large degree, is dependent on others, and therefore our welfare and others' welfare are inextricably linked. Unless one is a completely self-sufficient hermit living in a cave or stranded on a deserted island, like the Tom Hanks character in the film Castaway, one's very survival depends on others. In reminding ourselves of our fundamental social nature, and our interdependence, how we are born to live and work with others, and how human survival is dependent on others, there is a simple thought experiment that can act as a powerful exercise to help reinforce this idea. To try this exercise, you can choose any product that you rely upon or use regularly, or something that is important to you or that you enjoy, inanimate goods of some kind. Next. Spend at least five minutes imagining as many people as you can who are personally involved in the manufacture, preparation, or transport of that object, including all the components and raw materials for that object. Use your imagination, and among the thousands who may have contributed, try to visualize at least some of them as real human beings, maybe trying to picture what they might look like, what they might be wearing, and whether they have a family and so on. It can be a powerful practice to try this daily for a week, or even longer. You can experiment and modify the exercise according to what seems to have the most impact for you, but it is helpful to choose a different object or product every day. Frequently, people choose a meal as a subject, 
for example, a poached egg and some toast. And imagine the person who brought the food home, if not the diner himself, then the checkout person at the supermarket, the stocker, the trucker who delivered it to the market, the farmer who collected and those who packaged the egg that is now on the plate, the individuals who grew and harvested and delivered the chicken feed to the farmer. It can go on and on, as detailed as you like, and go in any direction. You could imagine all those who assembled the tractor used in cultivating the wheat for the toast, the miners in foreign lands who mined the ore to make the metal for the tractor, and so on. With a little practice, this exercise will help us appreciate how we are connected with so many people, dependent on so many people throughout the world just to meet our basic needs. And as that awareness grows, it is joined by a growing sense of gratitude. A friend recently tried this exercise while she was eating a piece of ordinary pre-packaged frozen chocolate cake she had defrosted. She described the various people she visualized, including the workers cutting the sugar cane in a humid field on a tropical island, those who grew the wheat, manufactured the flour, and gathered the cocoa beans, and a worker wearing a white apron in a large factory, surrounded by the aroma of a thousand chocolate cakes freshly baked. She said that when she was done with the exercise, imagining the thousands who worked hard to supply all the ingredients, put them together, ship it, and so on, she felt like some exotic, ancient, supreme potentate who had commanded a thousand people working in every corner of the world just to bring her a piece of chocolate cake. And she said that, for a moment, it tasted like the most rare and special thing she had ever eaten. Contemplating Our Common Humanity Having reflected on our social nature and our interdependence, we now move on to the third truth that the Dalai Lama suggests we contemplate, our common humanity. He recommends that we reflect on these three truths as a means of achieving a deep sense of connection with all human beings, a way of relating to others based more on what unites us than on what separates us. On the surface, it might seem that contemplating our common humanity alone should be enough to evoke a deep sense of our connection to others. In fact, by comparison, the contemplation of our social nature and our interdependence may seem a bit dry and academic to some. Why bother to contemplate our social nature and interdependence first? Upon further reflection, we can perceive the Dalai Lama's great wisdom in including the contemplation of our social nature and our interdependence. First, understanding that we are social animals, that our social nature goes to the heart of who we are, underscores the importance of these issues helping us see how they are critical to our survival as a species. Furthermore, contemplating our interdependence helps us understand how our own welfare is inextricably linked with the welfare of others. After contemplating our social nature and our growing interdependence, we can approach these issues more as a matter of survival and as a matter where our own personal happiness and welfare are at stake thus strongly reinforcing the importance and practical value of cultivating a greater awareness of our common humanity, rather than thinking of our common humanity as a purely religious, moral, or academic issue. So, 
Your Holiness, we have come to the third of your contemplations. So, before we proceed, just to be clear, can you explain briefly what exactly do you mean by your phrase, common humanity? I asked. This is, in a way, a simple idea. In order to contemplate our common humanity, we begin by investigating what are the most basic traits that all human beings share. So if you reflect carefully, you will realize that we all have the basic aspiration to seek happiness and to overcome suffering. For me, this is the most fundamental truth of our nature. But of course, our shared characteristics also include a need for a deep appreciation of others' affection, our capacity for empathy. We humans also have this marvelous intelligence as well as rich imaginative faculty. I think that cultivating an awareness of the fundamental equality of all human beings is perhaps the most important thing here, the Dalai Lama continued. We all have the same human body, the same human emotions, and the same human mind. If you get stabbed, you bleed. If I get stabbed, I bleed. If you lose someone you love, you feel sad. And if I lose someone I deeply care about, I feel sad. If you reflect on an important truth, you gain new insight. And if I reflect on an important truth, I gain a new knowledge. To me, all these features which differentiate us, like wealth, position, status, and so on, are secondary. I truly believe we can learn to relate to one another on a deeper level, based on our shared humanity. And the main point here is that if individuals relate to each other on the fundamental level of humanity, so long as they possess the human qualities, then there will be immediately a basis for trust. Finally, the Dalai Lama distilled the essence of this profound practice by saying, So, in my own personal dealings with people, for instance, whether the other person is a president or a big business person, or an ordinary householder, or even a beggar, or someone suffering from AIDS. The immediate connection with the individual is our fundamental humanity, our common humanity. He concluded by saying, This is the level on which I try to relate to the other person. That's what enables me to feel deeply connected with the other person. This is the key. The Dalai Lama uttered these last words in a simple, direct way, sharing his personal experiences in his typical open, honest, and unaffected manner. There was nothing particularly remarkable about how he said those words, but having witnessed him relating and connecting with others for more than two decades in exactly the way he claimed, I could not help but feel moved. I had seen him connect with so many people from all around the world, people from all strata of society. I had witnessed the way he treats all with equal respect and regard, affording them a certain kind of human dignity. I had watched so many people, meeting him for the first time, spontaneously break into tears, weeping with joy, a reaction that was not limited only to Tibetans, for whom meeting the Dalai Lama was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. One can never tell what is in the hearts of others, or why so many people from diverse backgrounds would spontaneously react to meeting the Dalai Lama with tears of gladness and joy. But I wonder if part of that reaction 
may be due to the unusual experience of being treated as a worthy fellow human being and being respected, loved, and respected on that basis. Unlike their customary interactions, in which others related to them based on whatever role they were playing at that moment, that of a friend, employee, boss, student, or whatever. And finally, I had seen people leave after those meetings with him invariably smiling, relaxed, as if they were suddenly nourished after a long fast. So, now we move to the final contemplation, our common humanity. In the opening chapters of this book, the Dalai Lama prescribed an approach to building greater trust and a sense of community by joining some kind of wider group with others who share a similar background or interests. In a way, this could be seen as a prescription that treats the symptoms of the societal illness and one that offers temporary relief. But here, he offers another prescription, one that heals on a more basic level, an approach to treating societal ills that could be seen as strengthening the underlying emotional immune system of society. He suggests going beyond our common interests, as bowlers or elks or Methodists, softball players, chess players, bicycle enthusiasts, truffle eaters or cat fanciers, to discover our underlying common characteristics as human beings, the qualities and traits that we share with every single human being whom we will encounter in the course of our daily life, our common humanity. A fundamental transformation of our basic outlook, in which we have a deep sense of our commonalities as human beings, as well as our differences as individuals, is the ultimate solution to creating a happier society, in which the members of that society have a sense of connection and trust, an underlying bond with every other member of that society. Of course, even though this solution may sound simple, that does not mean it will necessarily be easy. It requires more than simply acknowledging our commonalities with other human beings, more than a simple recognition of our social nature, interdependence, or common traits. It requires a deliberate and conscious reflection on this, over and over again, deep reflection, repeated reflection, until this view becomes internalized and becomes part of our fundamental outlook, our automatic perception or attitude that arises spontaneously as we encounter any given human being, friend or enemy. Although this may not be easy, fortunately, it is possible to undergo this internal transformation, to reshape our outlook, to approach other human beings on the basis of our shared humanity, on our commonalities instead of our differences. And the Dalai Lama, among others, is living proof that it is possible. Thinking about how the Dalai Lama relates to every person he meets on the basis of our common humanity, treating all with the same respect and human dignity, I find that a flood of images from the last 25 years flashes through my mind, bearing witness to this simple truth. Searching for an illustration, however, I find that the scenes are racing by in memory so fast that it is difficult to stop and select anyone in particular. But for some reason, at this moment, I recall a brief interlude that took place at a business person's lunch in Minneapolis some years ago, during one of his U.S. tours on which I had tagged along. It was a very exclusive and restricted event, 
organized for the local movers and shakers, the rich and powerful, to meet the Dalai Lama. We arrived at the building from the back, and in order to get to the ballroom, the DSS security team had planned a route through a maze of back corridors, passageways, and the kitchen. The kitchen staff and busboys and dishwashers had assembled to see the Dalai Lama go by, lining the corridors as he passed by, smiling and greeting them warmly. The Dalai Lama was scheduled to give an address before lunch, and the timing was such that we had to stand backstage for a few minutes while the speaker on the stage introduced him. A young busboy had happened to be standing near the spot where we stopped, so while we were waiting, the Dalai Lama and he exchanged a few words of small talk. When the introduction was finished, we emerged onto the low platform acting as a stage, and the Dalai Lama gave his address. There was nothing very extraordinary about the Dalai Lama's brief exchange with the busboy backstage. It was just a spontaneous and natural response to the moment, with no pretense, no ulterior motives, no fanfare. Well, nothing extraordinary other than the busboy's surprise, I suppose. But what struck me so forcibly later on was how the Dalai Lama interacted exactly the same with the rich and powerful people at that luncheon. As he did with the busboy, exhibiting the same level of interest in both, giving them his full attention, the same warmth, and when speaking with them, acting as if they were the most important person in the world at that moment, as if they were the only person. There was one other small detail of that lunch I remember, another ordinary detail of no consequence, but which struck me as a metaphor of the truth that we are all human beings. With no great differences among us on that fundamental human level, when we came out in front, I noticed the backdrop that separated the stage from the work area and kitchen. It was just a very thin wall of plywood, covered with a very thin dark wood veneer. All that separated these rich business people eating their roast duck at their tables of white linen and crystal and silver. From the workers who invisibly prepared all this food and the elegant trappings, all that separated these two completely different environments and kinds of people was just that quarter of an inch. For some reason, that struck me as a powerful metaphor for how we think we have this vast gulf between ourselves and others, how we think that there are such huge differences between people, particularly between the rich and the poor, the powerful and the humble. And so on. We think there is so much that differentiates us, but in reality, that is often an illusion. In reality, there is very little that separates us, and it seems as if the Dalai Lama instinctively acts based on this reality, realizing that we are all the same, at least on that fundamental level, and treats people accordingly. While it is clear that the Dalai Lama has a great capacity to connect with others on this fundamental human level, the question is, how can the rest of us develop the same capacity? Knowing that his attitude was largely the result of years of spiritual practice, I asked, "Your Holiness, I'm just wondering if there are any formal meditations, techniques, or exercises that people could practice regularly to generate this deep sense of trust." And a feeling of connection with others, perhaps some kind of Buddhist meditation that was designed to generate this state of mind 
but that could be practiced by non-Buddhists as well. There are many meditations and different kinds of practices, but there will be individual differences in which practice a particular person might find to be most effective. However, even without a formal sitting meditation, he explained, one can use the ideas we have been discussing as a kind of analytic meditation. Ah, now we're getting somewhere, I thought. I suppose I was hoping he would have some kind of special Buddhist method of generating this state of mind, or perhaps I had been expecting he might somehow encapsulate our discussions on these topics in some fresh and uniquely Buddhist way, according to some secret formula that could be used as a daily meditation practice. I'm not sure. But in eager anticipation of the Dalai Lama revealing a more structured meditation technique designed to cultivate this sense of our common humanity, I said, to be more specific about this analytic meditation, then... Well, to be more specific, he responded, we could deliberately reflect on, one, we are social animals. This idea could be reinforced by thinking about the other social animals and how they depend on one another for survival. Then, two, in the modern world in particular, all our interests and our welfare are so intertwined. The world is getting smaller and smaller each day. We are becoming more and more interdependent, and our own welfare is closely connected with the welfare of those around us. And three, we could reflect on our fundamental equality as human beings, such as the idea that each of us wants happiness and wants to avoid suffering. But these are the same three things that you were just talking about, I complained. Exactly, he said, smiling broadly as if I finally got it. Chapter 15 Empathy, Compassion, and Finding Happiness in Our Troubled World Your Holiness, since this is our last meeting here, I want to see if we can tie together several subjects that we have discussed and see if there is a kind of unifying principle related to finding happiness in a world with so many problems. Good said the Dalai Lama cheerfully, as if ready to tackle any topic. In mentioning that this was our last meeting in Tucson, I briefly thought back to our first series of meetings in Tucson so many years before. One of the very first questions I had asked at that time was, Your Holiness, are you happy? I recalled his response. Yes, definitely. Now a new question arose a question more in the context of our current discussions. I asked, Your Holiness, over the years I have noticed that you seem to be a genuinely happy person, despite the fact that your life has not always been an easy one. In fact, I remember asking you once if you were happy, and you told me yes. So I'm wondering if maybe your happiness has something to do, in part at least, with the way that you relate to others on the basis of our common humanity. Yes. I think so, he said simply. So then first, I was wondering if you could briefly elaborate on some of the benefits or the effects of relating to others in this way. About the effects, the Dalai Lama began slowly. Yes, I think when you relate to others on this fundamental human level, there's a sense of freedom. It opens a kind of inner door 
from where you can reach out to others more easily. There will be a sense of basic trust and lack of insecurity. So on a practical level, I interrupted, I assume that you feel that this basic trust will help overcome problems like prejudice or the lack of sense of community that we have spoken about. That's right, he confirmed, then continued. So when you relate on that level, when you meet other people, there will be actually no need for introduction. You will feel as if you already know the person, even though you might be meeting the other person for the first time. In this sense, there will be no real strangers for you. When you can learn to do this, you will then allow your natural capacity for empathy to express itself more spontaneously. I think this kind of empathy is one of the most wonderful human qualities. Because when you are deeply aware of the fundamental truth of our human existence, that just as I do, others too wish to achieve happiness and wish to overcome suffering and have the equal right to obtain happiness, you automatically feel empathy and closeness for them. You will then be able to easily relate to others' welfare out of a genuine sense of caring. This is compassion. I'm glad that you brought up empathy and compassion, I said, because that is actually what I wanted to bring up with you in order to clarify a few things. First, about empathy. By definition, empathy involves our ability to connect with others, our ability to relate to them, understand their feelings, to share their experience, and so on. So it seems that connecting or relating to others based on our common humanity, our shared characteristics as human beings, is essentially a method of creating empathy. But with this kind of empathy, you can relate to all human beings, and it does not depend on being able to relate to their individual characteristics or personal experiences. That's right, he said. And then, empathy and compassion are closely linked too, I continued. Compassion involves opening oneself to another's suffering, sharing their experience of suffering, and wishing them to be free of their suffering. So, empathy is an absolute requirement for compassion, because you need to be able to relate to that person, to share that person's experience, feel what they are going through, in order to feel genuine compassion. So, to summarize these things and how they fit together, we can say that cultivating a sense of our common humanity is a way of creating empathy, and the deeper one's empathy is, the stronger one's compassion will be. That's right, the Dalai Lama said again. So at this point, I'm wondering if you have anything to add about compassion, specifically in the context of finding happiness, both inner happiness and a happier society, one in which we begin to overcome some of the problems in today's world. The Dalai Lama took a moment to organize his thoughts, then said, Yes. First, as I always point out, when you experience compassion for others, the first person to benefit is actually you. Compassion is a true source of happiness. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease, helps remove fears and insecurities, and gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we encounter. It is the ultimate source of success in life. I believe that at every level of society, family, community, national, and global, the key to a happier and more successful world 
is the growth of compassion. So, you see, compassion is something really worthwhile. It is not just a religious or spiritual subject, not a matter of ideology. It is not a luxury, it is a necessity. Your Holiness, I know your views about all the practical benefits and rewards that can come from cultivating greater compassion, and how ultimately even our survival as a species can depend on it. But I think that one reason why more people don't take the cultivation of compassion more seriously is that despite your saying how compassion has practical value and is not merely a religious subject, many people still have an underlying perception of compassion as a spiritual or religious subject. For example, I've heard you mention how compassion enhances our physical and mental health, but most people still think of compassion as a moral issue instead of a health issue. In my own case, for instance, when you used to speak of compassion years ago, I could not deny that it was a wonderful thing, but it still struck me as something a little too warm and fuzzy for my taste, something too sweet and sentimental or something, and more of a spiritual topic. It took many years for me to start thinking of compassion in terms of its tremendous practical benefits, many years before I could accept your claim that it leads to one's own personal happiness, or has these other practical benefits for society, and so on. And one of the main things that changed my mind was the scientific proof of what you were saying, a lot of which didn't come out until the past few years. Anyway, Your Holiness, I guess all I'm saying is that I agree that if people adopted some of your views on a widespread scale and took compassion more seriously, for example, that it would have a profound impact on our society. However, since it is unlikely that most people in the West will convert to Buddhism as their primary spiritual path, if these principles are to be widely adopted in Western society, they need to be presented in a secular context, which generally means investigating and presenting them from a scientific perspective. Yes, that's true, said the Dalai Lama. Fortunately, I continued, there is now a wide body of scientific evidence of all these benefits of compassion, which I know you are very familiar with as a result of all your meetings with scientists. Not only that, but there is also scientific evidence showing how people can train their minds to become more compassionate and happier and how training the mind to be more compassionate can actually change the very structure and function of the brain. I think that's very important, too, because a lot of people may have the misconception that compassion and kindness is a matter of one's genetic temperament or innate disposition, the idea that you're either born as a naturally compassionate person or you're not. But if you are not a naturally warm or compassionate person, there's nothing you can do about it in the same way that you can't change how tall you are. But of course, that's not true. So, I concluded, my point is that there is now a lot of science that supports your views, which are based on Buddhist principles. But in order for that research to have an effect on society, the information needs to move beyond the universities, laboratories, scientific journals, and conferences so that average people begin to change their attitudes about compassion. Yes, I agree with what you are saying, said the Dalai Lama, which is why I generally try to point out to people how we need to promote these ideas in society, how we need to educate people. This can take place through the media, through the education system, 
and so on. And Howard, you also should do some research, some investigation, and share this kind of evidence in our book. We should try to promote these ideas in whatever way we can. And of course, here we must not only learn to recognize the importance of empathy, compassion, and so on, and not only talk about these things, but we must reinforce these ideas so that they become translated into our actions, into how we interact with other people and with the world around us. Having added the final topics to our discussion, empathy and compassion, it felt as if all the pieces, the diverse topics we had addressed in our many conversations, now fit together nicely. As the Dalai Lama made his final remarks, summarizing our discussion, there was an unmistakable note of confidence and hope in his voice, generated by his firm belief in the possibility of a better future, a better world that can come about through our own actions. So, the Dalai Lama concluded, if each of us can learn to relate to each other more out of compassion, with a sense of connection to each other, and a deep recognition of our common humanity, and, more important, teach this to our children, I believe that this can go a long way in reducing many of the conflicts and problems that we see today in the world. So, in this way, I believe that we can help create happier individuals and happier society, as well as a more peaceful world.